Conversations. Hello everyone, you're listening to Med Conversations. It's Beck, and I'm joined again by the wonderful Dr. Dean Whitty. How's it going, Dean? I'm well, Beck. How are you? Very well, thanks. It's good to have you back. It's been a very long time between drinks. We were just uh, looking up when we last had you on to initially introduce us all to depression with a bit of a summary and overview and that was in October 2021. So we're recording now episode three of depression in September 2022 and we're just stoked. So the last episode we talked a bit about evaluation and if you haven't listened to that it would probably be a good one to listen to before we launch into this. Dean is joining us today to enlighten us about the treatment of depression. First of all we'll just go through a little bit of the an overview of, of the approach to managing depression. Yeah, sounds good. So, Dean, in terms of the, the overall approach, do you have a structure that you use? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, um, so this is a bit of a kind of the structure in terms of treatment for kind of most psychiatric conditions that I, that I think about. And before we get into uh, the, you know, the typical biopsychosocial type treatments, I think it's always really good to start off thinking about developing a therapeutic alliance itself as being part of the treatment. Um, and so, because we, I mean, we we know that, and we'll get into it a bit later. A, a lot of the beneficial effects of psychotherapy do come from that establishment of a of a therapeutic alliance. And so, what the, what that involves is, you know, simple things like friendliness, warmth, and openness, um, having kind of respect and um, unconditional positive regard where where possible. Um, being clear that you're empathetic and trusting and holding hope. Um, and then also other really important things to just have in the forefront of your mind is is confidentiality um, and having, you know, the clear understanding of that there's a one-way focus of attention, which, you know, for a lot of patients is a pretty unusual thing. Um, that's not really how conversations tend to go. And, um, and yeah, and then it's kind of de- de- delivered in a care setting. So that's having that alliance kind of front and centre and focusing on that as part of treatment is important. And then psychoeducation um, is, you know, is part of the treatment as well. Um, as well as after you've done your assessment, um, having having in mind where the treatment will occur, so the, the setting of the treatment, you know, is this, is this inpatient, is it outpatient, is it... And that, that, that will kind of be guided by the understanding of what the risks are uh, and, you know, any kind of legal concerns as well. Um, and then, and then we get into the biopsychosocial uh, treatment. So I tend to think about biological treatments as um, medications, so you know, antidepressants or possibly augmenting medications as well. Um, and then the psychological therapies, or you know, even just having a psychological understanding of the problem doesn't need to be a kind of a formal therapy. Um, then social interventions. So that's you know groups. It's um, Promoting social uh, engagement, disengagement in kind of community relationships stuff, relationships and that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And then, um, and then lifestyle. Now, typically, and lifestyle being, you know, the modif- modifiable lifestyle factors like exercise, diet, sleep, and uh, substance, um, you know, alcohol, drugs, cigarette stuff. Um, now, they're kind of a little bit in the reverse order of how, or at least I tend to think about treating depression um, is those lifestyle factors are actually really front and center and should be should be front and center and then um, 
choosing a psychological approach and you know medications if warranted kind of comes in the context of that's a that's a it, it's not absolutely the case that somebody with depression will require medications but it really should be um, pretty central to your treatment that you will at least think about the modifiable lifestyle factors and you know, offering some kind of psychological help uh, even in even in kind of mild or moderate depression. Yeah, okay. I really like how you've got the alliance as being really, really front and centre and I think that that's something that we should remember, not just in depression and not just in psychiatry, but just across the board with medication, with medicine. Here we go, medications. I'm already jumping straight yeah. to it. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. Itching, itching to give people tablets, but really just the presence of a, an empathetic clinician is therapeutic in itself. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and, mm. and thanks for taking us through those other things. Are there other approaches that are advocated by by different bodies in psychiatry or does everyone have a pretty similar kind of way of tackling this? Yeah, so um, uh, I mean generally the way um, treating depression is thought of is that you, um, in mild depression you offer psychology, in mild to moderate depression you can have a choice of psychology or medications and in severe you should have both. That's kind of been questioned by the um, psychiatry kind of body, the RANZCP. Um, they released a set of guidelines oh, a couple of years ago now, in the in the, in the middle of COVID, um, and uh, they they did really talk about uh, you know the treatment paradigms being um, divided between actions, so things that you really must do, and so then that's thinking at least thinking about the modifiable lifestyle factors and. Um, so exercise, diet, sleep and um, alcohol, uh, tobacco um, and offering some kind of psychological assistance and um, and then um, this this next step down from that is a cho- is your choice and you've got a choice about medications and we'll get into that a bit later. Um, and then the third category is is alternatives and so that's that can mean switching medications, it can mean kind of thinking about the more second line medications to use. Um, and you know, augmenting or switching, and an ECT comes in um, later as well. And so it might not feel like that much of a change, but it's, I know that it's been a bit of an uphill battle by the, the college to get people to, to pay attention to it, but it, it probably will be increasingly the way that it's thought about, at least in Australia. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, well, let's jump into it then. Lifestyle and supportive care, what, what does that entail? Yeah, so really what that entails is... Um, uh, kind of the stuff that you'd know that you should be doing that your 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 well your mum or your dad could probably tell you all about how it's really important to um, focus on diet, have um, enough exercise, get mm-hmm. good sleep, um, limiting substance use, um, and just because it's obvious doesn't mean that it's not important or it's not incredibly uh, powerful, and sometimes even. Uh, changing some of these things a little bit is actually sufficient for managing kind of milder forms of depression. Um, really? Okay. Mm. And is do we have good evidence about this or is this one of those things where w- we just get a general vibe that it's good? Yeah, it's it's a combination of both. I mean, it's it's hard to get past that vibe of, you know, the um, it's it's common sense stuff, but there is very clear evidence for this as well. Um, I wish that I had the, I was reading an article about this today actually, <laughs> that, that actually kind of um, looked at the evidence for each of the major um, uh, 
psychiatric conditions that we talk about. Mm. Um, so I think they were yeah, anxiety disorders, depression, um, psychotic disorders, and ADHD, uh, and and really broke down the evidence for um, for each of those. And um, certainly in depression, the things that came out as being the most important were smoking, cessation, um, exercise. And the things that were still important but less so were sleep and diet, which which is interesting. It's not it's it was it wasn't what my understanding of the evidence was, but but certainly they're all very important. Yeah, there was one meta analysis that I looked at for for exercise that was looking at it wasn't a huge study. I think it was just over a thousand patients with depression, and they found that patients who were doing exercise in these various pretty heterogeneous trials were. Uh, the exercise arm of those trials was moderately beneficial compared with those who weren't doing any exercise. So there's one little lump of evidence, but I'm not really sure what we can what we can do with that information. But I think in any case, you're not going to suggest to anyone anything other than making sure they have a healthy diet, exercise, get enough sleep and minimise substance use. Mm. So I feel like it's a pretty safe advice to give mm. in any case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I guess it's probably worth thinking about them a little bit more in, in detail um, and um, just to kind of focus on what we're talking about in each of these categories. So um, so we th- when we think about diet, um, really what we tend to recommend, uh, what, what evidence tends to um, support, and I'd, I'd be curious in the endocrinology space if this is the same, but the Mediterranean diet is... Mm what people tend to talk about, so, you know, diet that's um, generally low in processed foods, um, fresh foods, lots of fruits, vegetables, um, nuts and seeds, um, and trying to limit um, animal products as much as possible uh, and having uh, lots of olive oil. Um, I, don't, I don't know, is there... Yeah, uh, look, I think, I think so little is known mm. about diet in general mm. in medicine. Mm. So the Mediterranean one seems to be the diet which has the most evidence across the board. So mm. it's interesting that it also seems to be helpful for, for depression as well. And, and alcohol, obviously, try to minimise that. And we say as much as possible, but obviously minimising meat as much as possible means being vegetarian. Minimising alcohol as much as possible means not drinking alcohol. Mm. So mm. Uh, as much as possible in your circumstances, weighing up how much you like these things. <laughs> Yeah, is that is that's that fair. yeah how are you how are you telling your patients <laughs> um yeah i i mean i th- i think it's that it raises a good point where you you know we 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 think about when people tell us to stop doing things that we really like to do sometimes that can make us want to do those things even more and you know we do have i assume the people listening to this are either doctors or soon to be doctors or or the um or just interesting or and inter- and stuff. interested yeah. in being <laughs> yeah yeah and um and th- there is sometimes a bit more kind of weight given to those recommendations, but I think ultimately, like we do need to think about that the time that a person kind of asking for help is, you know, spending in the office is a small sliver in that person's life, and we, there's things that we can do to to try and help. And um, and but I think harms minimization is a is a really important kind of strategy to think about as well, where mm. um, it's if if somebody's you know drinking, you know, four standard drinks every day, and we manage to reduce that down to just one or two a day, then that's 
that, that, that I, I would argue that a good things happen there. You know, yeah, yeah. even if exactly, it's meaningful. Mm. Okay, so so diet advocating a healthy healthy diet, Mediterranean diet is best. Um, what what other kind of lifestyle factors did you want to recommend? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, exercise is 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 super important. It um it uh has lots of um, direct effects on our mental health, but also kind of indirect effects by um, improving sleep and just improving general health. If we think about exercise, so psychoeducation is, a, is always a good place to start. So, you know, give an explanation of why it's helpful, why, why it's helpful you know, can, and, and link it with, um, you know, is with, with more kind of positive things than I think just health. You know, think about it as being linked with other pleasurable experiences and you know, okay. self-esteem and... Um, Increasing kind of the opportunity to have you know interactions with other people, and so you know it's good to think about uh, promoting exercise that's uh, that makes sense for that person. So you know that could be team sports rather than you know going to the gym. Um, and so generally, daily exercise is preferred over intermittent um, aerobic and uh, resistance exercise um, are both good, but there's probably a bit more evidence for aerobic exercise. Um, the uh, yeah, some people find it better to ec- exercise in groups and to be kind of kept accountable by the group. Others not so. Mm. Um, so I guess it, it sounds yeah. like with all of these things, what we're what we're wanting the patients to do is just live a healthy lifestyle, and you need to weigh that up, thinking about what they're actually going to do. Mm. So if they find that their diet and exercise is enjoyable and they actually follow those things, then that's more important. Yeah. Than than giving a an elaborate plan that's never going to be mm. adhered to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, if it, it's also good to regularly check in. If you've got, if if you're the one who's going to still be seeing this, you know, this person who's asking for help um, again and again, then th- there is worth in revisiting these things along the way because mm. um, often you know behavior change does take a while and it, it um and it's kind of persistence that that helps yeah um, would you ever refer to an exercise physiologist yeah, yeah definitely um we refer quite a lot in the inpatient setting it's obviously it's dependent on availability but I, I think that's a great thing mm. and and often people are surprised um at what they can actually what they can do i mean for a lot of i mean a, a lot of people exercise has kind of fallen off the radar for a, a while and getting back into exercise can be pretty scary. So having having somebody who can, you know, very literally, you know, develop a, a, a gentle and um, but but also enjoyable uh, program back into exercise can be can be super helpful. Um, yeah, and the, the the idea is, you know, that this it although it might start as, you know, treatment, you you really want is to kind of incorporate as part of someone's lifestyle. Mm. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, moving right along, um, the the other the other kind of key foundation of, of a healthy lifestyle is sleep. And you mentioned a few things about that, but what are the most important things you think we need to know about sleep when it comes to depression? Mm, yeah. Um, so, uh, what to think about with sleep? So there's. Um, so sleep's super important for general health. Um, it's particularly important in um, in oh in both so in, both in uh, unipolar depression, but also 
bipolar depression as well, which I know we talked about a little bit in the last episode. Um, really important for both. Potentially, it's much more of a focus in bipolar depression because we know that, and this is this is probably something that's not strictly what we're talking about today, but sleep deprivation is a big risk factor for precipitating a manic episode. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's that's off off the track. So I think so when we talk about sleep, um, we sleep in regards to depression. I mean, there's a lot of things that we tend to do that are part of the modern world that really get in the way of sleep. Mm. And, um, and I mean, it could be some people kind of listening to this and watching this on their phone after hours right now and looking into that blue light on the phone. <laughs> I like to think that we're whispering sweet nothings into people's <laughs> ears every night. Um, yeah, so... Uh, thinking sleep hygiene problems with technology just invading the mm. that pre-bed routine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's good to actually kind of go through all the features of you know what what constitutes good sleep hygiene um which you know involves having a being in a room that's as kind of as dark as it as it can be that you know the light is is shut out we don't have kind of screen time um and if we do have s- screen time we put blue light filters on which you know most modern phones have now yeah no, I actually I'm sounding like an old <laughs> I'm yeah, certainly out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> They're modern, <laughs> modern phones. Those modern, those modern intelligent phones. Fandangle things. Uh, actually, the blue, the blue light thing, I think, has been. Uh, oh, look, I, d- I don't have any good evidence for this, but as far as I understand, it's been disproven. Really, and it doesn't make a, a great deal of Interesting. difference. Interesting, but I think that it's our, it's our way of compromising and mm. and still making it feel like it's okay to be using the phone before bed. But but I agree. I think it's important that. In our patients overall, we need to address sleep hygiene and one of those things is going to be using technology less before bed. Mm, so yeah. so I guess that's the – so sleep, we do we do have evidence that it, help, it helps with depression, but you said earlier that it's one of the less mm. the less important things for unipolar depression. Yeah, yeah, at least compared to – particularly compared to bipolar depression. But um, insomnia is really common in depression mm. and so there is – kind of good psychological treatments for de- uh, for insomnia that um that's kind of founded on CBT mm-hmm. principles. And what's CBT? CBT? Oh. <laughs> different things. Yeah, we yeah, true. We we we're jumping forward and um so cognitive behavioral therapy which is um probably the most common form of psychological treatment for depression which we'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. We'll do a deep dive soon. Mm. Um but yeah, so then uh, in terms of sleep and depression, it's it's thought to be, you know, quite important. There's evidence that suggests of a mild to moderate effect. Um, certainly, sleep deprivation is a problem. Um, and it, but it is it, it's an interesting space in that in the short term, sleep deprivation can actually seem to improve depression. There's um, really yeah yeah it's um and uh, particularly when we're talking about unipolar depression um keeping somebody awake for and this is way in the weeds this isn't really part of this isn't part of treatment (laughs) Um, i wouldn't wouldn't recommend you keep your depressed patients uh, awake through the night um but there's it's there's interesting studies looking into um it's called chronobiology so um Mm. 
the you know this the role of the circadian rhythm in maintaining homeostasis in the body and all that kind of stuff um and that um and there's kind of different things looking at um in depression that's a part of a bipolar illness or kind of seasonal what's called kind of seasonal affective disorder which is kind of a form of depression that um we don't tend to see that often here but you you'd see more in kind of the nordic countries with with long periods of darkness um kind of light therapy can be a, a treatment for depression and but this is this is in the weeds yeah this is <laughs> so i'm getting in summary help patients to sleep but then also sleep deprive them <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no, write it, that down over, overall <laughs> so yeah, basic sleep hygiene it should be a part of your your treatment of depression and, and is one of the features of cbt which we'll be talking about later okay um so so i guess we've, we've talked a lot about lifestyle and and that reflects the importance of lifestyle as treatment for depression but one of the major pillars as we've mentioned is psychotherapy so now we'll, we'll just launch into a bit of a discussion about that so, Dean, what are the different types of psychotherapy? Mm. So, there's millions. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of different forms of psychotherapy, and a lot of them are kind of fairly uh, idiosyncratic and um, and different kind of kind of structured therapies. But in terms of the ones that, um, but we'll, we'll go over some of the more common ones, and particularly the ones that are relevant for depression. Um, so, by far the most widely studied the most widely utilized um, form of therapy is something called cognitive behavioral therapy um, it's been around for I, th- I think about kind of 40 50 years and kind of the um, probably uh, I've gone and probably said something that's immediately falsifiable <laughs> like Look, I'm sure there have been cavemen um, who've been giving behavioral <laughs> therapy that yeah and name. and effectively what this treatment is i mean the, the the clue is in the name it's um it's a form of uh therapy where you you look at the connections between thoughts behaviors uh and emotions you kind of try and draw links um and um you uh, it's a it's a very structured therapy which is also manualized which has um, kind of clear beginning middle and end mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it tends to be kind of modules that you'll follow that include lots of homework um, and really what we're trying to do is identify in some ways cognitive distortions so that's um, kind of examples of where where our our rational thinking is a bit flawed and mm-hmm. it's effectively trying to um the, the cognitive aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy is trying to use that kind of rational part to to make sense of the parts that aren't you know the the, the, the emotional parts that don't necessarily have to adhere to the same right so the, <laughs> the so the clinician is sort of taking the patient on a guided tour of their emotions and mm. and getting them to step back and use their cognitive yeah capacity to evaluate those emotions yes yeah, that, that's okay. right yeah and then there's the behavioral aspect of cbt which um kind of it can mean lots of different things depending on which specific issue or problem you're trying to manage but it, it effectively effectively means just doing things just getting in situations where you know, activating behavior so 
Right. When, with depression, you know, typically, well, often that means um, kind of what we call behavior activation, where there's, you know, you, you plan out to do things that would, you know, ordinarily bring you joy. And even if they don't bring you joy in the moment, you just kind of keep doing it. And it's a bit like a, like a fake it till you make it type thing. Right. Okay. So it's a bit more of an exaggerated form of smiling and hoping that that makes you happy. You go and you what? Go to the park and throw bread to the ducks because that used yeah. to bring you joy. That's it. You take you take your dog for a walk, even yeah. though, even though it doesn't doesn't. And, and and it's probably it's it's not necessarily just the action. It's the it's you know you you might and then you you might keep a diary of this and you will uh, write down or you'll think about you know what you were thinking or feeling in the moment and then at your next CBT session you'll. You'll talk about that. You'd right, that's the homework component. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and who does CBT? Uh, so GPs and right, so psychologists. Um, yeah, so psychologists. I mean, there's a very good chance that if you went to a psychologist in Australia, what they will offer you is CBT. That's mm-hmm. um, and it's probably not even in Australia. That's prob that's probably worldwide. It's um, it's it's the most kind of widely prescribed um, and widely kind of practiced form of, of therapy. But um, but the uh, another form of therapy that's um, really commonly used in depression um, is something called interpersonal psychotherapy. Um, it's it's a little bit like CBT in some ways in that it's manualized. It's, um, it's has a kind of a clear beginning, middle and end. And when I say that, you know, it's, I think it's typically 12 to 16 sessions and there's a clear kind of goal of each kind of stage of, of treatment. Um, but the difference is that um, rather than thinking about the rational part of the the, the, the brain, the cognitive um, part, it tends to focus a lot more on the affective or the, the, the feelings um, and particularly the feelings that arise um, within relationships and within kind of a, a context. So it, it really kind of will examine the relationships that are, the the focus will be on the relationships that a person has and um, and trying to kind of make sense of the the emotions that arise from different parts of that relationship and um, and so so it it's 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 kind of guided by a kind of theory of um, called attachment theory which is which is relevant but it's it's probably a little bit in the weeds for the purpose of discuss the discussion today. Um, but interpersonal psychotherapy is—it's got good evidence for depression, like pretty comparable to CBT. Also, really good for um, uh, kind of role transitions when when people are, you know, at, at different stages of their life and they're trying to make sense. So it also can be really helpful in grief and in loss. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's okay. it's it's a it's a good therapy. So, so, so both of these CBT and interpersonal psychotherapy. You've mentioned the word manualized a couple of times. Yeah. Um. So, so they're basically the clinician is using a, a set way of mm. approaching the therapy, and there's even a, a structured number of sessions and things like that. Yeah. Okay. What yeah, What so about kind su- of a recipe? Yeah. A recipe. Okay. Mm. What about supportive psychotherapy? Yeah. So there's the, there's the next two that we'll talk about. So there's supportive psychotherapy, and then um psychodynamic psychotherapy um i tend to think of them as coming together in a way in which um 
that can be focused on the symptoms of the here and now, but really their supportive psychotherapy kind of arose from psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is, um, uh, in in short, it's it's trying to understand the whole person, which um, which you know, thinks about the um, a person's upbringing and the relationships throughout the life and how that's all kind of created the um, that builds the formulation of who the person is today. Mm. Um, when I always look, think of psychodynamic psychotherapy as being like literature analysis. When you yeah. You've got the whole book of the person in front of you and you're yeah. just kind of delving through and trying to find the, yeah. Yeah. the motifs and, and the recurring symbols. Yeah, <laughs> and and um, and the reason I kind of group them together is that um, so psychodynamic psychotherapy is kind of a, a, a way of thinking about therapy and, and um, it you can kind of... There's, there's a bit of a spectrum where on, um, on one side um, you can... Um, try and kind of find insights and kind of breakthroughs and and reflect that to the patient um and um that's what we call more on the expressive end of psychodynamic psychotherapy um and that's that requires the 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 person undergoing therapy um to be in a space where they can they can manage that they've got what's called the ego strength that they can they can sit with maybe things that are said that are you know, not necessarily that nice to hear or pleasant to hear. Mm. Might be kind of, yeah. Um, and uh, and then on the other kind of side is the supportive end of the spectrum, which which is you're still trying to kind of understand the whole person, but um, but rather than necessarily kind of challenging or you know finding insights and reflecting them back, really it's 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 much more of a. Um, uh, kind of encouraging side of the spectrum where you're you know, allowing a person to ventilate and validating um, kind of where appropriate and maybe kind of reframing um, other times kind of rather than challenging and this this concept known as, as, as plussing, which is kind of trying to help someone see the... Um, uh, the plus the, side. The, the, pl- the plus side, yeah. I've yeah, never it's, heard it's, that before. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I like the sound of the supportive psychotherapy. Yeah, and to to be honest, <laughs> supportive psychotherapy—it's probably actually, it, it's it's probably what we tend to do, um, in, I guess in in hospitals or when if we're having kind of one-offs with patients and we're not following a manualized. Mm, it sounds like being a good friend. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, yeah. It's probably. It's thinking. It's kind of like being a good friend, but also being aware of w- what your role is. In that, you've got a, you've got a responsibility to this person, and they. It it brings up as well that um, it's it's really important to have an understanding in psychodynamic psychotherapy of both um, what's called transference and countertransference. Mm. So transference is what the um, what the patient thinks of you, and countertransference is. Kind of the opposite way, kind of the what the um, clinician kind of thinks about the patient, and it's really important that that's talked about and thought about because um, we we're all we're all human and we all have you know thoughts and beliefs and ideas that we're maybe not entirely proud of, and if we just or may, maybe not even that we're not proud of, but we um, that that shape the 
kind of the decisions we make and it's really important that if you're doing this kind of therapy where you're yourself being a bit of an active um, ingredient in the treatment you need to know what you're bringing into the therapy mm -hmm. um, rather than what you know yeah you're not just a blank slate mm, yeah but you should be is that right uh no so that that the the really old timey kind of more psychoanalytic psychotherapist did kind of think that you should be a blank slate um and i'm if there's any psycho um analytic therapist listening they're probably yelling at me right now because it's it's not entirely true but um but that um you know that the, the freudians i guess would would I'd be under the illusion that they were that they weren't bringing anything in, and that the, everything that was being brought in was the the patient's transference, um, and and the therapy was you know trying to make sense of what the patient was bringing in, and it was under the illusion that you weren't bringing anything, anything in, anything at all, and that's kind of counter transference came kind of out of the understanding that that the therapists are not are not themselves robots who. Mm, okay. I'm feeling uncaring, but and so supportive psychotherapy is leaning into that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So the main ones are CBT and interpersonal psychotherapy, and I think if you're a medical student listening to this, really just knowing about cognitive behavioural therapy is mm. is pretty well all yeah. that you'll be examined on. Yeah, um, and it's probably and worth yeah, it's probably worth mentioning as well that there's there's a lot of therapies that have more more recently developed therapies that have kind of arisen out of cognitive behavioural therapy. So you might have heard of um, DBT or dialectical behavioural therapy. You might hear of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. You might hear of um, acceptance and commitment or ACT. Um, and they're, 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 they're similar, but they're, they've been changed for a specific um, purpose from, um, from, from CBT. But similarly in that they're similar in that they're kind of manualized and and you know they follow a recipe which mm. is probably a little bit different from the psychodynamic psychotherapy side of things cool all right and does it work that's really the big yeah. question here do we have evidence that psychotherapy is effective and is there certain kinds that are better than others yeah um yeah so there's the, in short, yes, <laughs> it 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 does work for um, for depression as well as lots of other stuff. Um, in terms of one form of therapy being more efficacious than another, um, in terms of the four that I just had mentioned before, um, they all seem to be somewhat equal, equally e efficacious in treating depression, and. This is actually something that we do see somewhat across the board um, with uh, therapies that have kind of passed the the rigors of being being therapy that in that they um, they've got an internal internal consistent logic of um, of what they're targeting and um, uh, and then uh, if the people who are undertaking those therapies are um, uh, adequately trained um, and uh, they kind of know what they're doing they have that um, they're developing kind of therapeutic alliance they're demonstrating empathy unconditional positive regard and there's 
um, uh, the patient or the client is themselves engaged in the therapy, it tends to be that there's a good chance that that therapy will work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that's something that we call the common factors of, of therapy where um, and when I say work, it, there's, it's, it, there's good evidence to suggest that it will work as well as any other therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of like selecting something specific... Um, the reality is that people will tend to offer the therapy that they're trained in, which makes sense because um, one of the th- things that ha- leads to therapy working is that the, the person offering the therapy knows what they're doing. Knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so th- although we like to kind of think about you know for different um, different you know disorders or problems, there's there tends to be something that will work better for that. Often, if you if you go to a, a psychologist, they will offer their their kind of therapy, and if that works for that person, that's good. If it doesn't, then it's or that person kind of wants to find uh, someone who can offer a certain kind of therapy. Then um, you kind of need to need to look. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So psychotherapy tends to work, but mostly it sounds very much therapist dependent. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so we've talked a lot about lifestyle and, and psychotherapy and I think the key, the key things there are a general healthy lifestyle is also the lifestyle that is most suited to treating depression, if does that sound about right? Mm-hmm. And, and then psychotherapy, the main one being cognitive behavioural therapy but all of the different kinds of therapy tend to work as long as there's a, that really strong therapeutic alliance. So now... I wonder if you might be able to take us on a bit of a journey through the different medications that yeah, are used sure. in the treatment of depressions so and mm-hmm. antidepressants. I know a little bit more about these than about the psychotherapies, but still very little. It's a giant black hole for me. So tell me about the uh, different classes that we tend to use. Yeah, sure. Um, so the most common medications that we kind of use for depression today and kind of for anxiety as well but for depression are the uh, the second generation antidepressants or some some call them kind of atypical but but um but these are the s what the what are called ssris or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um and they're by far the most common medications that are used so that's things like escitalopram or fluoxetine or sertraline or um and they're yeah they're, they're, they tend to be what's they tend to be first line, which we'll, we'll get to in a tick. Um, then there's the SNRIs, which is um, selective norogenergic reuptake inhibitors. Um, so that's like venlafaxine and duloxetine. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other antidepressants that um, that kind of have a, a still part of this second generation, but they just they have kind of different differing effects. So that's kind of like of differing. Um, uh, mechanisms of action, so that's kind of um, metazapine, agomelatin, um, bupropion or wellbutrin, which is used a lot in in America, but but is isn't used in Australia. Um, and then there was the f- the first generation antidepressants, which kind of all came out of the and the fifties. And um, this is uh, we we actually talked a little bit about this in the last episode, where some of these medications were kind of discovered serendipitous, serendipitously serendipitously there we go yeah yeah they were they weren't developed 
um, in mind for treating depression, but rather they're antidepressant. Someone's just trying to make a really properties. good carrot cake, and yeah. then out came yeah, and like, oh, came in. Here's a tricyclic. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're they're the tricyclic antidepressants, and the the MAO inhibitors or the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Um, and so we'll we'll go through each of those um, a little bit, kind of briefly now, and talk about side effects and kind of when to use them and when not to use them. And the the good part about each of the different classes is that they tend to have a description of their mechanism of action in the title. Yeah, so love that. Love that. Easy. All right, so so how effective are they? They're, they're effective. Um, <laughs> Sweet. I'm feeling you. Right, next. Feel of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's variable depending on um, kind of whether it's a mild, moderate depression, uh, mild, moderate or severe depression. Um, generally, the more severe end, they're, they, you know, they're really quite effective. Um, when you're getting down into the more mild end of, um, of the spectrum, uh, it's it's a bit more mixed about kind of how how effective they they really are. And there's um, there's been a, a kind of a big meta analysis that came out recently looking kind of specifically at that, which you know did conclude that antidepressants are generally a, a you know a highly effective in severe depression. Pretty effective in moderate and in mild. It's 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 unclear what the utility is, mm, okay. but certainly they're used kind of widely in mild as well. And um, but generally, w- the way I think about it is, they tend to be pretty helpful for. They tend to um, uh, be sufficient to for. Um, achieving remission or for, for treatment in about a third of patients. They tend to be about um, a kind of a, a limited effect in about a third and then about a third there won't be any effect of, of that specific antidepressant which then um, kind of means that we you know, need to look at a different strategy whether that's changing to a different antidepressant or, um, yeah, or um, kind of um, augmenting or there's lots of other strategies you can look at. Okay, I like that. So, uh, so about a third will induce remission. Yeah, uh, and a third there's a, a bit more of a tempered effect, and mm. a third will be non-responders. So, it, it must really matter which patients are giving which antidepressants to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it does, and that's um, uh, so. Yeah, when when you get to getting to the more severe end, then it's it's the evidence is really quite clear that. Mm. Um, that this needs to be part of your treatment and an antidepressant. Um, it, there's no absolute clear line of when that changes, but it's probably somewhere around the moderate, the yeah. mild to moderate. Yeah. But also we know that depression's a heterogeneous illness. And when we talk about depression, we're, we're, we're still in that world of talking about symptom clusters and not all depressions are the same. Mm. And, um, and I know we talked about this in the last episode um, depression that has more kind of what we call melancholic features. So that's if you can remember, that's things like early morning wakening or psychomotor slowing. Um, that tends to respond better to medication to medications compared to um, depression, which is more characterized by you know, sad, you know sadness or um, uh, kind of. Uh, lack of appetite or more kind of classic typical features of depression. Mm. Um, 
there's probably less clear marked evidence of the effect, effect, efficacy of um of antidepressant medication. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound straightforward. It's no. a bit it's a bit controversial and it's not like treating an infection with an antibiotic. Mm. And it but it does sound like in the right patient they're very effective. Yeah. So Dean, maybe if you could just tell us about the different classes of antidepressants and and how they work and that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, sure. So before we get into that, um, it's worth kind of mentioning that the second generations um, antidepressants tend to be used more because they tend to be safer than the first generation, and particularly in in overdose. In terms of efficacy, most of the antidepressant classes are, are similar, although the tricyclic antidepressants might be a little bit more effective, particularly in severe depression. But right, okay, um, but. And we'll get into it when we when we talk specifically about it. But they they can be quite dangerous in overdose, which is um, where whereas SSRIs are actually quite safe in an overdose, um, which is probably one of the main reasons that they're used as widely as they are. Right, and and that's not just academic in in this situation because unlike treating other medic uh, you know other medical problems, overdose is obviously much mm. more likely in this kind of population group. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so all the different uh, widely used uh, classes of um, antidepressants uh, have as their mechanism of action kind of increasing um, the amounts of neurotransmitters, um, increasing in some some places, kind of decreasing. Uh, the, it gets very complicated when you get to the, <laughs> to the different receptors and stuff, but... Um, and mostly serotonin though, right? No, it's actually probably yeah. It's probably I don't know if it would be so. so Yeah, uh, serotonin, noradrenaline, and um, dopamine probably kind of. But but we we tend to think about serotonin, um, even though it's 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 another one of these things where it's it's it felt like a nice kind of clean theory that unfortunately didn't turn out to (laughs) to to kind of fit our messy patients. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah. So uh, on on that point, the, we we know what the medications do, and we know um, that uh, there tends to be a, a f- an antidepressant effect. We don't have a really clear, direct understanding of why increasing or decreasing neurotransmitters leads to the antidepressant effect. Mm. Despite kind of decades of of trying to research this and lots of kind of good theories, there's not. A really clear answer to that question. Um, yeah, so I guess if we if we start off with with um, the SSRIs, which is mostly what we'll see in practice, and it's um, kind of mostly what's used. Um, so they, um, so it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, they, um, and so as as I was saying before, that some of the more common ones you'll see are fluoxetine. Um, Escitalopram, uh, cetraline, uh, citalopram. Um, it's probably there's there are differences between them, um, but it's it's actually pretty reasonable practice as well to just know one well and gravitate towards that one if um, that's that's a pretty reasonable thing to do, and so they they um, work by um, or they. They have the effect of um, stopping serotonin from being kind of cleared quickly out of the um, 
the synaptic cleft, I guess. <laughs> um, and so that increases the serotonergic activity. Um, yeah. Okay. So if that's how they work, why don't they work immediately? Why do they take a couple of weeks to yeah. take effect? Yeah, and it's, it's a good question. And it's because they, they do actually work in increasing serotonin really quickly. Um, I don't know the exact time, but I think it's kind of within kind of minutes to hours rather than days or weeks. Um, so the brief answer to that is that we don't really know. There's again, there's there's theories about what the what's actually leading to the antidepressant effect, and it could be through kind of kind of modulation of the receptors themselves, um, which kind of happens over the period of time of having increasing serotonin kind of that's potentiating, but really we don't know. But we do we do know that this is a well known phenomenon that it tends to take at least two weeks for any antidepressant effect that we see of, of really any of the antidepressants um, being due to the the actual chemical itself. Um, that's not to say that we don't see improvements earlier. We we, we do. We, we often see quite a marked placebo effect of <laughs> antidepressants which is which is well, not which is not nothing it's, it's yeah. like if 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 someone's feeling better that does, doesn't doesn't matter why yeah um and that's placebo yeah you think yeah oh, yeah okay. if if there's a or well, i guess plus i mean there's uh, it's a bit reductive what, to call it because i guess if we're talking before about like the idea of the therapeutic alliance mm-hmm. like really what we're trying to do there is we're kind of trying to use the placebo effect to mm. you know to for, for for benefit to to get someone better um so yeah if, if someone's taking a medication or they're taking a, a pill that they you know really truly genuinely believe is going to help them there's a pretty good chance that it w- it actually will have mm. some effect in that direction and that's that's a good thing to promote but uh, they're a little bit less safe than just sugar pills aren't they yeah that, that's right so yeah so they so they do, uh, although they tend to be better tolerated, they do have side effects, which are which are quite common. And so, um, so what what I tend to say, what we tend to see, is that if you're going to have side effects, they tend to come on in the first couple of days. They tend to be around for about a week or so, and then they tend to get better. Okay. What we usually, you know, would see is kind of GI disturbance. So you, you know, you could have some constipation or some diarrhea some kind of abdominal discomfort. Some people get a bit of dizziness. Um, and then um, uh, you can see kind of changes in weight. So probably a bit more commonly weight gain, but also um, weight loss as well. Um, we do also, and, and similar uh, with sleep, you can sometimes see uh, kind of either poles where some people have trouble um, sleeping. So you know, it's better to take... Um, the SSRI in the morning, others uh, actually kind of uh, find that they get sedated when they take it, so it's better to take it night time. But generally, if somebody's going to have, it's, if it's going to affect the sleep, it tends to be insomnia or difficult sleeping rather than um, sedation. And then um, sexual dysfunction is, it's, it's a really important thing to ask about and to talk about um, because it's a pretty clear reason that people will stop taking SSRIs because it can kind of lead to decreased libido. Um, and the general rule is that someone won't tell you unless you ask them that directly. 
Yeah, and I imagine this is this is really hard to tease out because, mm. of course, depression causes reduced yeah. libido as well. But I, I have a, a half memory of a particular kind of sexual dysfunction associated with SSRIs. Um, do, do patients get an ejaculatory yeah. um, orgasms? I'm not sure if that's the – is that the term? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they can get an orgasmia, <laughs> something like that. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but – um. And delayed ejaculation mm-hmm. is is kind of the the, the classic thing. Um, and then uh, in with all serotonergic medications, so including SSRIs, um, there there is a risk of something called serotonin syndrome, which is a, effectively a, uh, it's kind of an overdose on serotonin. Um, and the doses that we use with SSRIs um, tend to mean that. If you if it's just monotherapy on its own, um, it tends to that the risk is pretty low. It's when you compa- when you combine with other other medications that are also serotonergic, and um, there's a, a long list of them. But the more common ones you'll see are um, kind of opioid um, analgesia like um, uh, uh, tramadol and fentanyl. Um, thankfully, we don't see fentanyl as much, but tramadol is certainly very common. Um, uh, illicit drugs as well. Yeah, ecstasy, yeah, MDMA. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and there's a th- this is an important thing to pick up because it's it's a medical emergency. People can get really sick. Yes, yeah, so some of the features of serotonin syndrome um, include kind of altered altered um, mental states, so you can get confusion or agitation, restlessness, um, delirium, and in serious cases, coma. Uh, there's uh, autonomic dysfunction, so that's going to be high blood pressure, hypertension, um, uh, tachycardia, um, diaphoresis and sweating. Uh, you can have um, uh, neuromuscular abnormalities, so the, the classic things are tremor and, and clonus. Um, and then there's kind of much more uh, serious complications, uh, which... Um, we hopefully wouldn't get to if it's if it's picked up early enough, but you know we can have renal failure, respiratory failure, seizures, and um, and death if mm. if left untreated. All right. So the so the common side effects are GI things, sexual dysfunction, and the serious ones to look out for is serotonin syn- serotonin syndrome. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned that SSRIs are first line. Mm-hmm. When would you when would you not consider giving somebody an SSRI? Yeah, so if, if somebody's already taking a bunch of other um, serotonergic medications, it's 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 probably best to think about a different um, a different antidepressant that's mm-hmm. or that you know has less of a direct effect on serotonin. Um, and then also in the elderly, it, it's not an absolute contraindication, but um, uh, SSRIs can uh, reduce the sodium, so uh, they can cause hyponatremia, which um, people who are kind of young and with have um, kind of functioning kidneys and stuff, it's not really too much of an issue. But in the elderly, hyponatremia can be can be pretty dangerous. So it's um, uh, if if you, if if we are using it, it's it's really important that um, that that's monitored. Mm. Yeah, definitely something that I see a lot of. What about SNRIs? So the wh- what does that stand for again? Uh, so that's uh, serotonin uh, noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, and so they um, yeah have the effect of 
uh, increasing serotonin and uh, noradrenaline. Um, so the SNRIs, so you, what you might see, are venlafaxine uh, and duloxetine. Um, they're, they're relatively commonly used. Um, and their side effect profile is pretty similar to um, SSRIs. Um, you just you might see a little bit more GI symptoms and potentially um, I think you can sometimes see a little bit more kind of uh, hypertension and um, effect on blood pressure. Um, similarly, they can cause hyponatremia, so you know, be careful in the elderly. Um, and the other thing that I think it's worth making a mention of venlafaxine specifically is it, it's got a really short half-life, so it means that it means coming off it quickly can um, can kind of precipitate something like a withdrawal because it it um, leaves the system really quickly. So people people tend to get pretty reliable side effects of coming off venlafaxine to um, too quickly, and I'm not sure if you, yeah, if you've seen it, but they tend I, they tend to I talk about. I actually had two two patients with this in the yeah. last couple of weeks. What are the what, what are the symptoms that? Uh, so there's uh, so there's kind of general kind of malaise type symptoms, but the really classic thing is kind of electric shock. The feeling of electric shocks in their um oh, actually in their I limbs. Heard that. Oh right, it's right. um yeah, it's 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 strange how how many different times I've heard that and it do, it doesn't mean that it's it's a it's a good medication and it's you know it's safe this isn't these withdrawals aren't dangerous they're just um that it's just good to know about um that if you come off it too quickly that, that it can kind of cause this thing that can you know you feel like you're being electrocuted yeah yeah so when when do we use SNRIs what are the indications mm. uh so the same indications of um, of SSRIs, so in in, in depression, but um, and similar to SSRIs, which I didn't kind of make a point of before. If there's if there's um, prominent anxiety, um, th- that's kind of more reason to use an SNRI or a SSRI. Um, duloxetine is a bi- is in a bit of a, a special category in that it's um, it, it's used in chronic pain as well. So if there's um, if there's pain issues, duloxetine can the doses that are used are different, but often it'll be used um, to manage kind of chronic pain at the same time as depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it can also be used in cognitive difficulties um, when you know, uh, cognition is a um, kind of concentration, is a, a core feature of the depression. But um, yeah, and then in terms of kind of when you when you wouldn't use it. Um, it's probably uh, I, I'd say the kind of similar rationale for for the SSRIs, um, except also thinking about um, what uh, having a, a a strategy for kind of coming off the medication afterwards if if need be. So it's so venlafaxine wouldn't be good in somebody who has you know variable compliance or who's likely to you know, come often on medications which you is could argue that it, it's great because they'll they'll know when they've not taken it <laughs> and then they'll never take it's it like again <laughs> 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 but yeah that, that's true you'll be, yeah uh yeah maybe it's not true <laughs> all right so so very similar to the ssris the snris I, I guess it sounds like the main point of differentiation there is actually that it tends to have slightly more side effects and that there's this niche for duloxetine in cognitive, uh, in poor cognition and, and chronic pain. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I, th- 
I'm not sure how much it's borne out in the literature, but there is, it, it is kind of uh, felt that um, SNRIs are, are uh, although they're not as well tolerated, that they may be more efficacious than SSRIs. But I'm not too sure about whether that's actually reflected in the literature, but that's certainly what what that's people will tell you. Yeah, okay. All right, great. So I think we'll we'll move on from the four letter acronyms and uh, and into atypical territory. So metazapine. Mm. Yeah. So metazapine. Um, so that that works um, by blockade of the adrenergic receptors receptors, which increases um, noradrenaline and serotonin. Um, and metazapine uh, has started to be used much more um, because it has it can actually have a bit of a sedating effect, which means that um, in uh, people who uh, insomnia is a really, or sleep disturbances are really really quite common in depression. So if that's a really prominent feature um, of the illness, um, metazapine can often kind of help with helping with sleep um, while treating the depression. And is that dose dependent? Uh, Yeah, it, it is dose dependent, but in, in kind of the opposite direction from what you might expect in that... Um, yeah, it's it, a funny one. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's actually at the lower end of the dosing that um, has you know that, that effect of sedation through its effect on the histam- uh, histamine receptors. Uh, the higher the dose goes, the, the, kind of the, the less of an effect mm. you have. Um, so to, yeah, to the, to the point where like once you get to quite high doses, it's actually recommended not to be given at night time because it can affect sleep. Yeah, okay. So this is something that I've seen a bit of on the gen med wards where there'll be an, a, an elderly person who's a bit sedated and, and then people will halve their dose of metazapine. So mm. obviously that's going to have the, the opposite effect. Mm. So an interesting little little fact to know. Mm. So you've talked about when to use it. What are the side effects we should be looking out for with metazapine? Mm. Yeah, so the... So the main side effect, obviously, from what we were just talking about is sedation and drowsiness. Um, and it can cause a bit of dry mouth. But other than the... Oh, and, and then the other thing is it can um, kind of increase appetite as well. So it's not unusual for people to gain a bit of weight on metazapine. Which might be the desired effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there's more severe side effects, which are really uncommon. So uncommon that they're... So the, the severe side effects of a granulocytosis and um, and neutropenia, um, but they're not common enough that there's any recommendation of kind of routinely monitoring. And I've I've never yeah. seen it before. All right, is it something you warn patients about? Is it like uh, when we start somebody on carbimazole? Yeah. Uh, for for hypothyroidism, you tell them if you get a sore throat, go to your doctor and get a blood test. But is this so rare that you wouldn't even yeah tell them that? No, uh, okay. no, I wouldn't. But um. But uh, yeah, kind of thinking about this now, maybe maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point about the weight. So so something that you choose for patients who have a prominent symptom of insomnia, but also perhaps a prominent symptom of, of anorexia. Mm. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's anorexia in terms of like the the true uh, the, 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 the the medical the, symptom, the symptom of, of, n- not, of loss no of appetite. appetite. Um, yeah, as you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in somebody with anorexia, they might um, anorexia nervosa will probably not want to take metazapine for the same reason. Mm. It's um um that's the 
that's the world I'm working in right now. So it's very much at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on. Uh, tell us a bit about the Maui's. So the, the <laughs> monoamine oxidase oh, yeah. inhibitors. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> um, so these work by, again, it's in it's in the title, they um, block monoamine oxidase, which then um, – so mono, monoamine is um, a kind of an umbrella term that neurotransmitters of dopamine or epinephrine or – noradrenaline um in in australia and serotonin kind of fall under so um they kind of block those um neurotransmitters from being broken down or, or oxidized so it increases the amounts of those in the um, neuronal synapses um and these are these are old um antidepressants they're um they don't tend to be used anywhere near as much as well, they're, they're actually used quite rarely now. Mm. It's often a marker of somebody whose GP is quite elderly. Yeah. <laughs> they come in on a Maui. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, when you'd use them would be if you were continuing someone on a medication that they'd been managed kind of stably for, for decades, which um, uh, which could be a reason somebody would use it. it it's also it's, – they're talked about as being um, – worth considering if someone has atypical symptoms of depression so that's um in kind of hypersomnia or hyperphagia um i don't know in practice how often that would be the case that that'd be used because um they're actually the the side effects are, are pretty serious um the they they have very um strong histaminergic um effects so that results in kind of blurred vision constipation and dry mouth so the anticholinergic um, effects and then there's um there's also really serious effects as well so um you can um, precipitate a hypertensive crisis uh when you uh kind of uh, don't restrict certain foods uh and when you're taking a mouth inhibitor and to be honest Monoamine oxidase inhibitors aren't really too much of a part of my world. So I, the last time I thought about this uh, interaction was probably medical school. So I can't actually really? remember. What, I can't actually remember what the food was. That's so interesting. So it was also the last time I thought about this. And and maybe if if they're used so rarely that a, a psych grad with many years' experience in psychiatry hasn't thought about it since med school. Hopefully, you're not being assessed on them anymore. But I do remember this was a feature in in my medical school experience and the foods are foods that are high in tyramines so mm. I remember just thinking that it was mostly the foods that I liked so cheese yeah I remembered it was cheese yeah, che- yeah. cheese is cheese is really the the main one um but I, I think it was I think cheese and wine were the mm. the main things Fun stuff. um the uh, yeah and, and basically that can increase the risk of a hypertensive crisis yeah, um, and yeah, and then they're also um, they uh, can be dangerous for Pickled serotonin meat. syndrome. Um, what was that pickled what? meat? Oh, all right. Tempeh. Keep, keep away from the tempeh. Um, Sourdough it really is all the good uh, things. Yeah, fish sauce, miso, boutique beers. Miso. Oh, well, well, let's keep the male inhibitors in the past then. Yeah, so so um, 
it doesn't sound like it'll be something that anyone's going to be starting anytime soon without subspecialist mm. advice. But uh, there, there's one particular contraindication that we should be aware of, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So the 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 medications that really shouldn't be used uh, in excess of what they're prescribed. So they they can be quite dangerous in overdose. Mm. Uh, so that's. So that that's something that we kind of really have to keep in mind. If there's a high risk of overdose, then, um, and if someone needs to be on a mound here, but uh, you really need to think about safety. Um, you know whether that's the right medication, and if it is, then really have to think about you know who who's holding on to those medications, and kind of think about what you can do to kind of limit access. Mm. Okay. All right. We're we're going a, a little bit. We're going to stray a little bit less back into better <laughs> charted territory and the tricyclic antidepressants. Yeah. So how do they work? We can't just say they do what it says on the box because uh, this is yep. less clear. <laughs> yeah, they tricyclic. Um, yeah, I think they might actually be the only ones, the only class that doesn't tell you what they do. But they, um, and I mean, part of the reason is, I mean, I'll, uh, they do lots of things um, and it, doesn't explaining what they do doesn't really give us too much clarity. They um, inhibit inhibit reuptake of both serotonin and noradrenaline, which increases the amount of neurotransmitter in the synaptic cleft. Which is a sentence I've heard you say about four times mm-hmm. so far. It sounds yeah. like most of the they, antidepressants. Yeah, they they do they that. do, and it's it's worth mentioning as well that when we talk about the receptors that they're acting on, there's there's lots of different kind of subclasses of receptors, and there's kind of Letters and numbers that are connected to each of them, and so let's talk about the things that are really important mm. for junior doctors and, and med students, and that's the side effects. Mm. Yeah, so w- what are the serious side effects we should be looking out for? Or maybe let's start with the common ones. What yeah. are the common side effects? Yeah, so they they have really strong anticholinergic effects. So that's um, so the kind of the effects that we've talked about before. Um, I think of them as the 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 slud or the sludge mm-hmm. um, symptoms of um, salivation, lacrimation, urination, and defecation, um, and so um, they. Uh, so if we kind of go through each of those, so um, salivation it can lead to kind of dry mouth, lacrimation, so tear ducts. You can you know, dryness in the eye, which can lead to blurred vision. Um, you can get constipation. Uh, oh, sorry. I've Jump urination, urinary retention, and and mm. um and constipation. Yeah, so anti slud. Yep, anti slud. Um, and then there's uh the the serious side effects are, um, in. They can be cardiotoxic even in um, kind of a therapeutic window, uh, but but in overdose um they can be quite dangerous and precipitate arrhythmias um particularly through prolonging the QTC. The the corrected QT interval on your local ECG, which um, it's probably not a thing to talk about too much, if unless um, we can kind of point at an ECG in <laughs> front of us. But but it's it's something to to certainly think about um, with with psychotropic meds and um, uh, and uh, they can cause seizures as well um, and. With with both the cardiotoxicity and seizures, that's you know particularly in an overdose, um, they're the, the the serious side effects. So that guides us in terms of when we probably would not use a tricyclic antidepressant, and it's um, 
yeah, when there's a, you know, a if if you're giving it to somebody who you you're kind of quite worried about the risk of overdose, um, that's probably a reason to kind of second guess that choice. Mm, mm, um, okay. Yeah, but I think but tricyclic says we've I think we've brought them up a couple of times. They're probably they're probably the most efficacious of the antidepressants, but it's just the their tolerability and their side effect profile just mm. means that we just have to be a bit careful. So so they, they tend to be more effective in kind of severe depression with melancholic features. So if you remember from last um the, some of the melancholic features are kind of psychomotor slowing diurnal mood variation uh and and also um amitriptyline which is a, a tricyclic is often used in low doses in pain um so again often used in people with chronic pain and depression the doses that they use for both of them are are different but but that but that mm. they, they still are still helps used. to be able to double dip yeah. the indications a little yeah. bit okay so I, I just wonder, are there any schemes where people can pick up a, a few days' worth of their tricyclics from the pharmacy so that they're not able to stockpile? Yep. Yeah, that's um, – yeah, that's – I don't know about schemes necessarily, but certainly a, a lot of patients – Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's often a big part of the uh, treatment plan is that, you know, people will do daily pickups at their local pharmacy if um, – and a lot of pharmacies are kind of quite happy to do that as well. Um, so it can be local pickups and can be kind of having this, this certain kind of like locked boxes which will only give you access to one medication at a day. Yeah, there's so there's a lot of things you can do that even if you're on, if, even if somebody has access to medications that are dangerous to take in an overdose, there's there's lots of things we can do to limit that access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good to know. All right, so that actually takes us to the end of pharmacotherapy. So we've talked about SSRIs being mostly the the first-line therapy that's generally pretty well tolerated and fairly safe in overdose and SNRIs being fairly similar. You told us about metazapine being something that we might use in those with insomnia as a prominent kind of symptom and maybe used a bit more in the elderly or people who we would like to gain some more weight. The Maui's being an old school drug that no one uses anymore and tricyclics being a very effective drug that are very dangerous in overdose with some side effects that might not be very well tolerated. So if that's, if we've talked about lifestyle, we've talked about pharmaco, uh, psychotherapy, pharmacotherapy, the next thing to talk about is, is ECT. So Dean, um, tell us, or maybe just to start with, what does ECT stand for? So ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. So it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty scary stuff. Just the the title of mm. that, and um, I think it's had a bit of a checkered past in terms of its history mm. for something that's one of the most effective treatments of anything in medicine that we have, as far as I know. Do you know how how it came to be, how we figured out that this might be a thing? It seems like an odd thing to inflict on a patient hoping yeah. for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's had a it's had a kind of a, a strange path to you know to becoming kind of part of um treatment, but it has it, it it is a treatment that's been around for a while now and where it really came from initially was the recognition that in people with with schizophrenia um, who would have a seizure for for whatever reason, 
it was observed that that would help with some of their kind of positive symptoms of, of schizophrenia. And so there was a stage, I, I don't know exactly when, but in it's certainly in the early 20th century um, when there were there were kind of different modalities used to try and induce seizures and so actually uh, insulin seizure therapy was oh wow was was quite uh i don't know necessarily common but it was used um and and so then ECT kind of uh, arose as an alternative to insulin coma or insulin seizure therapy mm. where effectively what what's happening is that it's um kind of inducing a seizure with the the idea of 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 that kind of resulting in some beneficial effects, and it was found that you know it was effective in psychosis, but it was actually kind of particularly effective in severe depression. Mm-hmm. And and what actually is it? So is it, it? It's not a medication. What is it in practical terms? Yeah. So in so c- certainly in the in the bad old days, um, the caricatures or the I guess the 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 scary image that it had was was pretty well founded. It was um, a treatment that was used kind of indiscriminately, and and although it can be you know effective in managing severe mental or in treating um, severe mental illness, if you're inducing a seizure but with um, but without kind of appropriate precautions and and things and kind of muscle relaxation and you know, people could get really injured, and and certainly it it looked like a very scary thing as mm. well. So essentially, it's a shock. It's a shock, um, similar yeah. to to defib or something like that, where it's an application of an electrical current. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a sh- yeah, it's it's a shock with yeah with the idea of inducing a seizure, which yeah sounds understandably like a terrifying thing. But the patients are, um, you, you said. Muscle relaxants and yeah, yeah. So the so ECTs come a very long way now, and a patient who's having ECT will be put to sleep, will have muscle relaxants. Sleep, so GA, general anaesthesia. Uh yeah, general anaesthesia, um, and the procedure will typically be really quite short, matter kind of matter of minutes. The seizure itself is kind of a matter of seconds, and. It's probably good to, if in your training you can kind of observe some ECT, I think it's a really important thing to do. The main reason is it appears very boring. <laughs> There's not really very much <laughs> happening in the room and I think that's a good thing to see. Mm. Um, and because of the kind of the muscle relaxants and the general anesthesia, the, the person's asleep and they also have um, pain relief given as well um, and so people tend to wake up and the the vast majority of the the dangers and the side effects of ECT is is the effect of the anesthetic itself that's where m- most of the risk of ECT comes from yeah today. and and that's a risk that we're happy to accept for a variety of other indications mm. yeah okay and so how does it work yeah it'll be an unsatisfying answer because <laughs> there's lots of possibilities we 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 know a lot of changes that happen we know that um there's a massive increase in monoamine um neurotransmitters so our old friends serotonin noradrenaline and dopamine we know that there's a release of hormones from the pituitary gland um there's whether it's this effect or from something else that it, it, there's the thinking that it 
um, increases neurogenesis, so the plasticity of the brain. And there's also thoughts that kind of increases connectivity in other in other kind of important ways. Um, but very unsatisfying because there's not a unifi- unified theory about what exactly it is about a controlled seizure that seems to result in symptom resolution for so many people. Yeah, okay. And and does it have any adverse effects? You yep. said that the, there's a the general um, anaesthetic yep. effects. Yeah. And then the other effect, which is it's it's really important to, to think about is memory loss. It's, it's not universal um, and in the vast majority of the case um, the people will have kind of short-term um, anterograde memory loss of kind of going forward from that from that point um, rather than kind of long-term in the past kind of memory loss which the vast majority of the time um, will completely resolve over over days or um, or weeks. There are rare rare cases where there can be kind of gaps in someone's memory. Um, mm, okay, from the time or from the time, so anterograde. Um, but there, if in kind of repeated ECT, which um, the, the usual course of ECT will typically be three sessions a week for, um, in some ways, kind of as as long as it takes to um, achieve achieve symptom resolution, and tends to be the case that. Uh, if the first time it's used, often we'll only need kind of five or six sessions. Sometimes people yeah, need kind of far less than that. Mm. In people who are, who have more kind of chronic long-standing illness and potentially have um, have kind of needed this treatment lots of times in the past, it's it's not unusual to have ECT that you know, needs to go on for a bit longer. And some people do actually have what's called maintenance ECT, where they'll have kind of a session of ECT kind of every week or every second week or every month, kind of indefinitely. It's a, it's a thing that's needed to keep them well. Yeah. So those people are more likely to have memory loss? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so it sounds like it's very effective. How effective is it compared to pharmacotherapy alone? Mm. It's it, it it does depend on kind of what you're using the ECT for, which we'll, we'll get into it in a tick because um, ECT tends to be used in the most severe cases um, mm-hmm. and tends to be used kind of particularly when there's really um, acute risks right now if somebody's really acutely suicidal or if they're so depressed um, kind of with a melancholic depression that they're not eating and drinking and that can kind of lead to... You know, medical complications and and then I mean the other reason it's used and used quite frequently particularly in the private system is is patient preference a lot of people actually really kind of like ECT which I think makes sense when you look at the side effect profile compared to other um, medications that we use but um that that's all to say that even when we're looking at ECT mostly being used in the the, the more severe end of the spectrum tends to be about kind of double as effective as, as medications alone. So mm. medications will you know, be about a third of people will benefit from the first antidepressant they've been put on. It's about kind of 60 to 70% of people will tend to improve with, with, with ECT. Amazing. Yeah, okay. Okay, so Dean, I think you've just given us an 
excellent overview of the treatment of depression. I think that what I've taken out of this is that we need to have a bit of a multi-pronged approach and I really appreciated that thing that you said at the start that I think we, we need to carry through all of this, which is that the therapeutic alliance is one of the most important things. Yeah, definitely, because, um, I mean, a way to think about it is you can have all the knowledge in the world and you can know kind of exactly what somebody needs to do and exactly kind of what interventions will will help. But if that if that person listening to you, I guess, doesn't, doesn't think you're coming from the right place or there's not that um there's not that trust there then they're just not going to do what you say and that means that they won't get better from your intervention yeah so I guess um the the information that would be redundant if you didn't have a good therapeutic alliance is what we've talked about today which has been very extensive so we talked about lifestyle so just the general healthy lifestyle being really important we talked about psychotherapy and I think the take-home point there was that cognitive behavioral therapy is the the most common and and widely used, but that most of the different kinds of psychotherapies are equally efficacious. Then uh, we talked about medications, and again, the focus there was on SSRIs being the the safest, best tolerated medications that are generally first line, Um, SNRIs being fairly similar. We talked a little bit about some of the other um, kinds of antidepressants like tricyclics being particularly effective but particularly harmful in, in overdose. And then we talked about ECT being a, a fairly boring procedure to watch uh, that, that's come a long way from, from its troubled past that's very effective in, in severe depression. So if you've stuck with us for an hour and a half of this journey, you'll probably be excited to be uh, putting the flag down at the summit um, Dean, it's been such a pleasure having you on and this is our third of three episodes on depression. Hopefully we can get you back to have another conversation with the team in the future about another another psychiatric problem. But thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's been an honour sitting next to you at the table here. It's been great being here and nice having a chat. Thanks, Dean. If you've liked this episode, please... Uh, don't hesitate to send us a little message on Facebook or give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks very much, everyone. Good night.